My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Thank you for joining me as we continue our journey through the Word of God today. And today we are continuing through the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 32 to 37 today. And uh, this is Jesus on his way to be crucified. He's already had the uh, cross of the cross section of the cross strapped to his back, and now he is on his way. We're going to pick up in verse 32. Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Now, Simon from Cyrene, uh, he would have been a visitor to Jerusalem, probably there as a pilgrim for the Passover. Uh, he was from North Africa, which was about 800 miles away, 1300 kilometers from where he, from Jerusalem. He doesn't really know anything about Jesus. He's just, and he's just there and had no desire to be associated with this man who was condemned to die as a criminal. Uh, but he wasn't given a choice. He was compelled to bear his cross. Maybe it was because he was an obvious foreigner. He would have looked different. And he would have been very conspicuous in the crowd, so it would have been easy to pick him out. Now, what we actually have from the Word of God is some really positive, wonderful reasons to believe that this man came to know Jesus and to really know what it meant to take up one's cross and follow him because there's evidence to suggest that his sons actually became leaders among the early Christians in Mark chapter 15 and Romans chapter 16. How amazing for that man. He was randomly pulled out and it changed the course of his family's life. Again, same for you and me. We, you know, many people have just gone to church not knowing what was going to happen to them and they get saved and then realize, oh wow, I, I've, Jesus is changing the course and trajectory of my life and my family's life. So they're taking him to a place called Golgotha, which is a place of the skull. Now this was a specific place outside the walls of the city because crucifixions uh, couldn't happen inside the city. But it was very close. And it was where Jesus died for our sins. This is where our, our salvation was accomplished. Now, Golgotha in Latin is translated Calvary. That's where we get the word Calvary from. And it means place of the skull. That's what Golgotha means. It was called that because it was where criminals were crucified. It was a, a place where, you know, the cruel, humiliating death of crucifixion would take place. And it probably was on the side of a very well-trodden road. Um, when you come to Jerusalem, we can go, you know, to the, uh, up to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which, uh, represents the, the sites of the traditional sites that are talked about of Golgotha, where Jesus was put on the cross. You can see it's actually not that far from the Garden of Gethsemane. And, uh, also where Jesus was, you know, it's celebrated where Jesus was buried. Um, but we're not quite sure about that. There's, there's some historical, uh, differences, 
but wherever it was, it was not far away at all. And um, on this journey, remember they're trying to take him on this long journey as an ad campaign for Don't Mess With The Romans. Um, they give him some sour wine uh, to drink and he wouldn't drink it when he tasted it, which is interesting because it was customary to give somebody who was about to be crucified an actual pain-numbing drug, uh, basically to lessen the awareness of the agony that they're about to go through. I mean, they've already in incredible pain. But Jesus refused to have any of his pain numbed by drugs. He chose to face the spiritual and physical terror with all of his senses at their height. He didn't try to dull the pain with drugs. There's a message in that for all of us. Now, they crucified him. Again, two simple words. They crucified uh, at the beginning of verse 35. What's interesting is the Bible actually doesn't give us a lot of the gory details of Jesus' physical agony. It just says they crucified him. Uh, in Matthew's day, everybody would have known what crucifixion was. They would have been acquainted with the terror of it. And we have an understanding that the Bible really wants us to remember Jesus' spiritual agony more than his physical agony, which I'm going to get to in part of my observations for today. Now, I mentioned in a previous recording that in 1986, Dr. William Edwards wrote uh, an amazing article called um, the, On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. It was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And I want to read some more excerpts and observations from him and some of his associates um, that kind of talk to what Jesus went through on the cross. Although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they protected it as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. The victim's back was first torn open by the scourging, then opened again as the congealing, clotting blood came off with the clothing that was removed at the place of crucifixion. When thrown on the ground to nail the hands to the crossbeam, the wounds were again opened, deepened and contaminated with dirt. With each breath attached to the upright cross, the painful wounds on the back scraped against the rough wood of the upright beam and were further aggravated. Driving the nail through the wrist severed the large median nerve. This stimulated nerve caused bolts of fiery pain in both arms and often resulted in a claw-like grip in the victim's hands. Beyond the severe pain, the major effect of crucifixion inhibited normal breathing. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and the, soldiers and the shoulders tended to lock the respiratory muscles in an inhalation state, thus hindering exhalation. The lack of adequate respiration resulted in severe muscle cramps, which hindered breathing even further. To get a good breath, one had to push against the feet and flex the elbows, pulling from the shoulders. Putting the weight of the body on the feet produced more pain, and flexing the elbows twisted the hands hanging on the nails. Lifting the body for a breath also painfully scraped the back against the rough 
wooden post. Each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and led to a sooner death. Not uncommonly, insects would also light upon or burrow into the open wounds of the eyes, the ears, and the nose of the dying and helpless victim, and birds of prey would tear at these sights. Moreover, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be devoured by predatory animals. Death from crucifixion could come from many sources. Acute shock, blood loss, being too exhausted to breathe any longer, dehydration, stress-induced heart attack, congestive heart failure leading to cardiac rupture. If the victim did not die quickly enough, the legs were broken and the victim was soon unable to breathe. A Roman citizen could not be crucified except by direct order of Caesar. It was reserved for the worst criminals and the lowest classes. No wonder that the Roman statesman Cicero said of crucifixion it is a crime to bind a roman citizen to scourge him is an act of wickedness to execute him is almost murder what shall i say of crucifying him an act so abominable it is impossible to find any word adequately to express that's what the roman historian tacitus tacitus called crucifixion a torture that was fit only for slaves because they were subhuman We get our English word excruciating from the Roman word meaning out of the cross. So whenever you use that word, think about Jesus on the cross. Now, what we have to remember as we think about all this is that Jesus wasn't a victim of circumstances. He was always in total control. He said of his life in John chapter 10, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. He was in, he endured torture and he freely chose it for you and for me. He freely chose it because he loves you and me. So how can we ever doubt God's love for us again? So when something bad happens to you, you're like, well, I don't know if God loves me anymore. How can you when you know what Jesus did on the cross for you? How can I? I can't do it. He has gone to the most extreme lengths imaginable to prove his love to you and to me. So let's move on to the rest of verse 35. They divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Jesus lost his clothing at the cross. He was nailed to it naked in the height of humiliation and shame. He came from heaven to accomplish our salvation by giving up everything. He even gave up his clothes. He became so completely poor for you and for me so that we could become completely rich in him that it might be fulfilled. Psalm 22, the psalmist wrote that it might be fulfilled. They divided my garments among them. That's, that's what the psalmist said would happen to the Messiah. 
See, uh, in all the sin that Jesus was taking on, your sin and my sin, the pain, the agony, the injustice, uh, the invisible hand of God was guiding all things so that specific prophecies would be fulfilled. The Bible tells us, Isaiah tells us that, that God knows the end from the beginning. There's nothing left to chance with God. If God says something prophetically in his word, it's going to happen. It's not going to be determined by the free will choices of man. God is God. He has a sovereign way of making prophetic words come to pass. This is what's going to happen. That's what happens. So, They sat down and they kept watch over him. Why? Because they didn't want anybody to rescue him off the cross. Uh, There were many instances where people would try and rescue friends and loved ones from the cross. They were still breathing, so they'd try and get them down. Um, And then above him is this sign, King of the Jews. In John chapter 19, we we read that the religious leaders... um, amongst the Jewish people, actually objected to this title. They felt that it was false and they actually didn't believe he was the king of the Jews and they thought it was demeaning because it showed Rome's power to humiliate and torture even the king of the Jews. Uh, But Pilate wouldn't be uh, persuaded to, to bring it down and when he was asked to take it down, he said in John chapter 19, what I have written, I have written. It stands. Now, what was written on this, um, what was called a titulus, a written charge, was carried by the criminal around their neck as they were being marched to crucifixion. And then it would be put on the uh, top of the cross. It was a deterrent uh, for others to see whatever the, whatever the uh, charge against them was. And the charge that's above Jesus' head, is that he's the king of the Jews. That's the charge. So what's the observation for today? Um, Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene. How privileged was he? Even though at the time he didn't feel like he was privileged, probably felt very uncomfortable, probably felt very much like, I do not want to be in the middle of this. I think that's like a lot of people who give their lives to Jesus feeling very uncomfortable in that moment. I know I've done many altar calls and asked people with heads bowed and eyes closed. In other words, nobody's looking around to just raise your hand to accept Jesus. I'm not going to embarrass you. And and people struggle to do that. Why? Because there's a level of uncomfortability. But then after that, there is a moment of understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower and, uh, and what that means for your eternity. And that's what happened with Simon of Cyrene. I've always marveled at how the Bible talks more about Jesus' spiritual agony than his physical agony. Um, the spiritual agony of being separated from his father. The spiritual, the fact that the spiritual agony is talked more about than the physical agony, uh, all I can imagine is the spiritual agony must have been so bad because we know what we talked about the physical agony would have felt like. So how bad must the spiritual agony have been? Unbelievable. Jesus went through agony physically and spiritually for you and for me. 
What a wonderful Savior. Heavenly Father, thank you today for reminding us what a wonderful Savior Jesus is. What a, what a wonderful sacrifice that he laid down his life spiritually, physically, took on just such a, an immense amount of agony for us so that we can have an eternity in heaven with our Heavenly Father, reunited with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day. Thank you.